Good morning and welcome you to this part of our service. I greet you in Jesus' name. Okay, good. I see there's a cup of water there. Thank you for whoever did that. I was going to ask for one to be brought, but somebody was thinking ahead. As we were talking about infirmities, I, uh, I figured my infirmity was a dry mouth while I'm speaking, so I um, haven't prayed three times about that yet. Maybe I should. I don't know. Okay, turn with me to John 17. If you will remember, if you were here the last part of June, I uh, had an entire message on this particular chapter, and I sort of set this chapter up as a, um, as a springboard for speaking about the particulars of true religion, i.e., uh, what I hope is the religion we ascribe to, uh, that in particular Anabaptism, but I don't want to make it completely a Anabaptist uh, praise session because I believe this is chapter 17 of John sets forward what Jesus' heart was for true religion. No matter if they go underneath the, the um, inscription of Mennonite or Anabaptist or whatever it is, it's true religion. But what I do hope is that our sect, I guess, of Mennonite slash Anabaptism is true religion. I hope we, I hope we uh, portray what is true religion. Anyway, I'm going to take one verse out of, out of this chapter. We talked about it briefly a few months ago, but I'm going to, I'm going to just blow it up for you today. And that's um, verse 17. Breaking in here, but it says, Jesus is saying, he's praying to God about his disciples that are now and will come. And he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Just a few words, but very profound. The title of my topic this morning is, The Word of God is Plain. That was a hallmark of Anabaptism. It is still a hallmark of true Christianity. Again, whether or not it's Mennonite, Anabaptist, or you, you, put, you fill in the blank. A true Christian will say the word of God is plain. That's what Menno Simon said many years ago. He said the word of God is plain and needs no interpretation. Back in the day when I was younger and I lived at home, every once in a while we'd be doodling around there, us children, whatever, and my mother would say to me, uh, or one of us, um, you know, go do something, or I want you to do this, or whatever it was. And we would act as though we didn't hear. And she'd maybe repeat it, and maybe we'd still act that way. And after a while, she'd say, can you understand plain English? That was her way of saying, would you listen up and do what I told you to do? Usually that got our attention. As a scholar in school back in the day, and yeah, I was one back in the day, believe it or not. When we do tests, I remember certain teachers, and maybe all of them, but I remember certain in particular, were sticklers about following directions to an absolute fault. So in other words, if there was a section in the test, say, or whatever, the homework, that said, please circle the right answer, 
And I, in my haste, would not read the directions carefully, and I would underline the answer rather than circle the answer. Every answer was half wrong, no matter if I had the answers right or not. It was because I did not follow the directions to an absolute T. Now, that may seem a little um, over the top for you. I don't know how that hits you. I don't know if it's still done that way or not. Um, But as I think back on that, that was not a bad lesson. It really wasn't. The direction said to circle the answer, and I underlined it. And that was my problem. I didn't read it. I did not read the plain English. There's a couple of verses in Proverbs that I think are quite interesting. You can turn to them if you want. You don't have to. I'm going to kind of breeze through them. Proverbs 16.20 says this. He that handleth a matter wisely shall find good, and whoso trusteth in the Lord, happy is he. The RSV puts it like this. He who gives heed to the word will prosper, and happy is he who trusts in the Lord. The NIV puts it like this. Whoever gives heed to instruction prospers, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Proverbs 13.13 gives gives us the exact opposite of that. It says, Whoso despiseth the word shall be destroyed, but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. From these two verses, it becomes abundantly clear that what the proverb writer is saying is the person that pays close attention to the word, and he's referring here to the word of God, instruction, good instruction, to the Bible, will become a happy, prosperous, blessed person. Now, that's in a godly way. Um, Because you take heed to the word of God, to a T, does not necessarily mean the world's going to be standing out there with open arms saying, Hooray, this is great. We love these people. Um, you know, they, they, they got it right down. In fact, in an ungodly society, it will be quite the opposite. And we'll see that as we move along here. It is also of great interest to me. Uh, this past spring, I had an interesting series of conversations with three very different people. And it struck me. All of these conversations, for one reason or the other, led into a religious, spiritual direction. And we, we ended up discussing the church each one of these individuals attended, for whatever reason, including mine. And I asked each one of these people, either they, they, I either asked them or they offered the information, one or the other. I said, why do you attend the church you attend? Every one of them had the same exact, exact same answer. It was... Because that church preaches the whole Bible without a fault. They are into the whole counsel of God. And I knew some of these people well enough that I just had to look and say, hmm, really? Is that the way it is? It seems like to me you might be skipping over parts of that, parts of the Word of God. Back in the day, whenever the Anabaptist faith was in its infancy, early 1500s, there was a chronicler in uh, Switzerland there by the name of Sebastian Frank. You might have heard of him if, if you know anything about your church history. You might have. And here's what he said. This man was part of the Reformed Church, but here is what he said about the Anabaptists. This is, from his, this is his viewpoint. He says, there arose from the letter of Scripture Independently of the state churches, a new sect which is called Anabaptists. 
By the good appearance of their sect and their appeal to the letter of Scripture to which they strictly adhere, they drew to themselves many thousands of God-fearing hearts who had a zeal for God. Isn't that something? He specifically points out that they strictly adhere to the Scriptures. Kondrick Greville, one of the fathers of Anabaptism, had this to say when he wrote to his brother-in-law in the city of Gaul by the name of Vadian. He had a very short, he had a long letter, but he had a short sentence in there that's very, very important. He says to Vadian, his brother-in-law, he says, I believe the word of God without a complicated interpretation, and out of this belief I speak. The teaching of the Lord has been given for the purpose of being put into practice. Period. The Anabaptists rightly divided between the Old and New Testaments. I could read you some excerpts on there. That I'm not going to. But they used their knowledge of Scripture to explain their beliefs very, very ably to their opponents on baptism, separation, non-resistance, and on and on, the free, separated church. And it frustrated their interrogators. Here were these people, these, these humble backwoodsmen, many of them, and they could confound those uh, ardent defenders of the then state churches, and it frustrated them. If, if you want an interesting read sometime, get out your martyr's mirror. I did this yesterday. And read through some of those debates that those people had with, uh, with their monks and their priests and whatever. It's absolutely amazing. And I, and I have to say to myself, could I that ably defend my faith with my hands tied behind my back and people that were there simply for the sake of tripping me up? Could I do that? The question comes, how could the Anabaptists and the Reformers have taken the same scripture and looked at it and came at vastly different ideas of what the word of God said? How does it happen today? Mark made mention of, of uh, some of the churches he was in prior to coming here, and he made the remark that uh, he's glad he found a church that um, follows the Bible. I just told you my three friends this spring said, hey, our church, our church teaches the word of God. Solid, 100%. How could it be? I'm going to try to condense a long story for you to help you understand how this happened. When, when Constantine came to, is this like overwhelmingly loud or is it just me? Okay, all right. Um, when Constantine came to Rome back in the 300s, and began to set up the what became the state church system. He um, he had a problem in the city of Alexandria where there was two bishops that could not agree on the Trinity. The one bishop said that God and Jesus were of the same substance. The other bishop said, no, it can't be. How can God be superior to Jesus if they're the same thing? It's impossible. What he didn't differentiate between was substance and order, okay? He didn't understand that Jesus and God are the same substance but of a different order. No different than you and me sitting in these benches here today. A man and a woman are of the same substance. They're made of the same stuff, but we're of a different order. He didn't get that. 
So uh, Constantine said, well, well, we'll call a council here. So he, he gathered together everybody at the Council of Nicaea. You might have heard of that already. But it was the first worldwide church council. And uh, they're going to decide how this all works out, how this, how this fits together. And they, they had the council, and they rightly concluded at the council that indeed the bishop that was off in his perception about the order versus substance of Jesus and the Father, he was wrong. And so they took the, the original Apostles' Creed, and they verified that. They said, we're going to stick a sentence in there that verifies that, that the Father and the Son are the same substance. Well, that's fine. But what they then did then that was not fine was they took that decision and they said, this decision we've came here, we, we, we've come to today is on par with the Bible. It is as inspired as the Bible. That's where they went wrong. As time moved on, the Catholic, what became the Catholic Church, had many a synod and council and this and that and the other thing. And by 1229, they had a council there that they decided, because of all the twistings of scriptures and additions and subtractions and byways and whatever they put to scripture, it was now unsafe for the general commoner to read a Bible. Because if he read the Bible... Any, the word of God is plain, and it does not need a complicated interpretation, okay? Any commoner that gets his hands on this is going to say, hold it. Something is vastly wrong here. What we're being taught in church and what this Bible says is absolutely two different things. So what should have they done at the Senate in 1229? They should have said, we've got to get back to the word of God. What did they do? They said, we'll, we'll solve the problem. We'll take the, the Bible out of the hands of the commoners. That's what we'll do. They, out, they outlawed the, the Bible, except the book of Psalms. I think you could have Psalms, I think, if I remember right. Well, the clincher for this whole thing was a man named Augustine, or Augustine, whichever you, way you prefer to pronounce that. He comes along during the time of Constantine. We're backing up here a little bit. And just when the church so desperately needed a man, that would call out the evil that was creeping into the church. What did Augustine do? He comes along and he defends it. Back in those days, there was a group called the Gnostics. You've probably heard of them already. And the Gnostics believed that because the Old Testament and the New Testament were so vastly different, because the teachings seemed to actually contradict, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament had to be two different gods. They were wrong. It was the same God. Now, any true believer would, by reading the scripture, read, uh, read Hebrews, if nothing else, would come to the conclusion that that's not the case. It's the same God. It's what we call progressive revelation. The New Testament supersedes the Old Testament, see. So it's not a conflict. It is a progression. So the, the Gnostics were right that, indeed, the two are different, but they were wrong in the fact that it, was a, it had to be a work of two different gods. That's where they were wrong. What does Augustine do but come along and he says, uh, wait a minute, these Gnostics are wrong. And he did exactly what I told you four weeks ago that Luther did. Rather than bringing people back to the true faith, he goes all the way to the other side. He said, it's the same God. The, the Old Testament and the New Testament carry the same weight. They do not contradict each other at all. So how does he do this? 
In the Old Testament, the Israelites are commanded to kill people. They are. In the New Testament, the Israel of God is is commanded not to kill people. So we have a problem. Listen to what Augustine said. This is how he rectifies this. He says, killing is just as lawful under the New as the Old Testament's. What is evil about war? It is the death of some who will die anyway, so that others may live in peaceful subjection. This is mere cowardly dislike, not religious feeling. The real evils of war is the love of violence, revengeful cruelty, fierce enmity, wild resistance, and the lust for power. And it is, and it is generally for the punishing of these things that, in obedience to God, good men undertake wars. For they find themselves in such a position as regards to the conduct of human affairs that must that right conduct requires them to act or to make others act in a certain way. Now that's what you call the word of God with a complicated interpretation. When he was pressed about Jesus teaching in Matthew, his answer was this. It is It is that what required here is not bodily action, but inward disposition. So you got it? I can kill somebody as long as I love that person. And as long as I don't do it out of revenge or uh, hatred, I can do this. The unfortunate reality is that the combination of church councils, taking the scriptures out of the hands of the common people, and the theology that was developed and set in stone by Augustine, permanently warped true religion. It did. And it is still with us today. Augustine is known as the father of Western Christianity, and there's good reason for that. Now let's listen to what Luther had to say in the 1500s whenever the Reformers are are trying to find their way, the Anabaptists are trying to find their way. And during this time, there was an uprising in Germany called the Peasants' Revolt. And what it was is it was a, uh, it, the peasants for hundreds of years had been suppressed and made to work for the, cast, the guy in the castle on the hill there somewhere, and they were tired of it. So when Luther started bucking the, the Catholic Church, they, they, they came on board with their social issues, and they said, we're tired of our stuff too. And they kind of rallied around Luther. And for a time, Luther gave them some tacit support. And they were actually kind of his friends. But the time came when Luther realized that if he supported the peasants, these people didn't have any other pitchforks. He really needed to live a good life. He needed the the money of the noble on the hill. So he switched sides. And he began to defend the noble on the hill. And he said, these peasants are actually acting in, um, they're acting contrary to God's will because they are uh, guilty of an uprising. I'm going to read to you his rant. And this is hard to believe that a churchman would say something like this, but this is what he said. He says, to kill a peasant is not murder. It is helping to extinguish the conflagration. Let there be no half measures. Crush them. Cut their throats. Transfix them. Leave no stone unturned. To kill a peasant is to destroy a mad dog. Our princes must be, in this circumstance, regard themselves as officers of divine wrath, which bids them chastise these scoundrels. A prince who failed to do so would be sinning against God very badly. He would be failing in his mission. 
A prince who in such circumstances avoids bloodshed would become responsible for their murderers and all the further crimes that these low swine might commit. It is no longer a question of tolerance, pity, and patience. It is the hour of wrath and the sword, and the hour of mercy is past. It is a trifle for God to massacre a lot of peasants when he drowned the whole world with a flood and wiped out Sodom with fire. He is an almighty and frightful God. If there are innocent men among the peasants, God will surely prepare and keep them as he did Lot and Jeremiah. I will not forbid such rulers as are able to chastise and slay these peasants without previously offering them turns, even if the gospel does not permit it. Once more, the devil is brought into, I'm sorry, into it. The, be- the peasants ter- serve the devil. I believe there are no devils left in hell, but all of them have entered into the peasants. What strange times are these when a prince can enter heaven by the shedding of blood more certainly than others by means of prayer? And he ends with this little epitaph. Come, dearly beloved lords and nobles, strike them, transfix them, cut their throats with might and main. Should you die, should you in death, should you find death in doing so, you could not wish for one more divine. For you are you fall in obedience to God and in defending your life against the hordes of Satan. How would you like if I came up here this morning and told you that? That's unbelievable. One historian puts it this way. He says, I know of no example in history with the exception of Hitler where a man in such an inhuman, brutal, low way turned against his own followers. And that is sad. He did that merely to establish his own position without any reason. Why did he do that? I'll tell you why he did it. Luther did it because he, in an attempt to establish pristine religion, went no further than Augustine. That's where he stopped. And he thought that he, he thought he had true religion. And that religion, quote, quote, would make room for that. And that's sad. The reformers' cry was scripture alone, solo scriptura. But really, it was only a paper slogan. All right, for the rest of the time, let's look at where we're at today. Why do people not believe plain scripture? I'm going to offer you several reasons I thought of, and you can see what you think. It is human nature at its finest to question and second-guess and resist instruction or authority and assume that they know better or just as well. The Business Insider magazine did an interesting um, study, poll, and uh, what they were trying to, to determine is why this epidemic exists that I just explained to you. Here's what they determined. People instinctively feel that their freedom is threatened and thus will do exactly the opposite of what they're told because they want to regain their freedom. Okay, you follow me? So in other words, um, experiments have, have showed that if you, give, if you tell children that they shall not play with a certain toy, that's exactly the toy they want to play with. That's it. That's the one they want. If you tell an adult that, uh, uh, or rather adults, there's been experiments done where adults have read labels on foods. 
And the more there's warning against the, the, the badness of this food for you, the more they want to eat it. It's just the way we're wired. People are intrigued when a behavior is forbidden or discouraged. It is a fact that on movies, I don't know this because I don't watch movies, but the, the, more, the more a movie will carry a warning about the, graphic, the graphicness of that particular movie, the more people will watch it. They're literally intrigued with that. Proverbs 16 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Pharaoh, when he's confronted with God, he said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Those people are still with us today. Number two, why do people not believe plain scripture? It's not unusual for scripture not to make a lot of sense logically or hark very much to reason. Does it make any sense to you that 300 men with Gideon could defeat an entire army or that a baby could be born of a virgin or that a cruise of oil will never run dry or that the earth is formed in seven days at someone's voice or that it was destroyed by a flood? That just does not add up. That's all, that's all miraculous things. And, the, and the, the person that is a reasonable person says that can't happen. But we know that the Bible tells us that there is going to be people, Second Peter, Peter talks about this, that are unstable and unlearned and they're going to rest the scriptures. They're going to, they're going to deal with that in their own way. Jeremiah the prophet said this to his people in Israel in Jeremiah 23, 36. He said, And the burden of the Lord shall you mention no more. For every man's word shall be his burden, for you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord God of hosts. Number three, a lack of a real grasp of the mind and perspective of God. And this, is, this builds on, on the last thought uh, uh, very handily. A very, very familiar verse. You all know it. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As a parent, we have a little bit of a perspective on this. God has given us your children that uh, really a child left to himself would self-destruct. He really would. I, I'm, I'm just convinced of it, especially if he had a brother or sister. Then, then they, there'd be a mutual self-destruction. But, you know, we, we have some rules at our house. And those rules to my children don't make just a ton of sense. I, you know, we have a bedtime. We go to bed at a certain time. If my children had their way, they'd probably knock it up two hours, but it's not going to happen at our house because I know that that's not good for them or me either one. So we have some rules. See, it doesn't make sense, see. It's no different with God. God has a perspective that we absolutely cannot get. And when we choose to jump outside of what he asks for us, we are doing that at our own risk and our own endangerment. Number four, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharp. It's called a fire and a hammer. And at some point, the word of God will intersect your comfort zone. It just will. It becomes painfully personal. And that is exactly what happened to Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and all the rest. At some point, they said, if I take one more step, I will find myself ostracized from the lords and the nobles and the higher-ups, and I am not willing to take that step. It became extremely personal and painful. 
This isn't new. The rich young ruler felt the same way. Jesus said, you lack one thing. You change one thing, and you will be perfect. He said, I can't do it. It became way too personally painful. Felix, when Paul's preaching to him, speaking of Paul and his abilities to preach, he may have been a little, a little lackluster, but whenever he preached to Felix, it says, Felix trembled. But he said, Paul, go away, go away. Come back another day. When it's convenient, when it's convenient, I'm ready. I seriously doubt Felix ever found a convenient season. Number five, the scriptures are expected to grow and become outdated just like everyone else, like everything else. We live in a world that eventually everything loses its, um, loses its uh, ability to serve well. Uh, you just think back in your short lifetime, um, there was a day that every one of us had a phone hanging on our wall. And when we wanted to make a call, we walked up to it and we, we phoned. We still do. Some of you do, I know. But in today's world, the younger generation, they don't bother getting a phone to hang on the wall. And some of you older folks don't either anymore. Why is it? It's because there's a better way. It became antiquated. And for some reason, we have this idea that the Bible becomes antiquated. I, I shouldn't say we. There is that thought that, you know, we live in different times. It has become outdated. And so we have the Christian church at large now I'm talking about where no matter what the Bible says about women preaching and teaching, we'll, we'll wink at that because after, after all, it's outdated. No matter what the Bible says about remarriage after divorce, that's outdated too. No matter what the Bible says about loving enemies, we'll do that when it's convenient. Surely God wasn't real excited whenever he taught through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 about a, a literal hair covering. That, that certainly, certainly wouldn't be anything we get too excited about. And in today's world, as you well know, this, this thing of uh, homosexuality and all its perversions um, is uh, rampantly uh, taking the church over by storm, and that is a sad day. That's very, very sad. Just this week, I read of a Mennonite pastor and a retired Goshen College teacher. You might have read it too. But on the subject of homosexuality, here's what he said. I am not prepared to believe a book that is 2,000 years old and to decide that that is the only revelation to modern man. That's sad. That is sad. What he's saying is the word of God needs a complicated interpretation and it's antiquated. That's what he's saying. This disregard for plain scripture is something that unfortunately is done every day. Number six. Why do people not believe plain scripture? I'm convinced it's because of the long-suffering of God. Long-sufferingness of God. Because there is no immediate consequence for disobedience, people say, well, yeah, it's all right. It's working out. You know, I'm happier, you know. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, a very familiar verse, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set to do evil. So what we have is we have people almost too many to count, faster than they can trip over each other, 
abandoning clear scriptural teaching, just abandoning it. And some of them are our, are our friends and relatives and sons and daughters and cousins, brothers and sisters. And what happens is the sons and daughters of God look over at those people and they observe them a year, two years, three years. And there's a little carnal inkling in each one of us that says, you know what? It's working out for them. Maybe I'll do that too. And the church of Jesus Christ suffers and suffers because of the patience and long-suffering of God. What is our challenges today? My question to you is, do you still believe the pure, plain scriptures do not need a complicated interpretation? Do you still believe that? Do we still believe that here? I'm going to give you some challenges, some parting challenges that we need to think about as we think about this catastrophe that we have in the Christian church today. If you want to embrace and believe and practice the pure, plain scriptures, you need to get into the scriptures. You need to understand those scriptures. In 1 Samuel 1, it says the word of the Lord was precious in those days. Do you know what that means? That's old English. But what that means is it was rare. You couldn't find the word of the Lord very much in those days. And this was said of the people of God. It was precious. It was rare. Why was it? Was it because, was that God's fault? That was not God's fault. That was their fault. It was the ignorance and nonchalant attitude. It was the fornication with the women that the, that the priests were into. It was the digging into the meat that they shouldn't have. And the word of the Lord was rare. Amos, the prophet Amos says, the day's going to come that there will be a famine in the land and it will be a famine of the hearing of the word of God. And that is the day and age we live in. I found it very interesting this week. I had a very interesting conversation. A man came to my door. I never saw him before. And he was selling insurance just for cancer. And he assured me that I have a 67% chance of getting cancer. And I believe him. I believe that's true. I probably will get cancer someday for all. I, know. I don't know, but I mean it could, it could well happen. That's fine. So he, he, he ran me through his spiel about what he had to offer. And when he was done, or not when he was done, but we had this conversation was sort of lengthy and we, it was interspersed and whatever. And, I, and um, he said to me, is this, is this something that, is, that attracts you, that you, uh, you're, you think might work for you? And I will say this, as far as insurances go, this had to be one of the best I have ever seen. It was a quasi-savings account is what it was. It had to be one of the best. But, and I told him that. I said, you know, as far as insurance go, that's got to be one of the best, but I'm not interested. Well, now that's an oxymoron. That's enough to set an insurance salesman through the roof because I'm telling him it's good, but I'm not interested. He said, could I ask you why you're not interested? I said, sure, I'd be happy to tell you. I said, here's the deal. It's not that I don't carry any insurance at all. But I said, I do make it a, a real effort, a purposed effort to keep that to a minimum. And I explained our church's mutual aid or whatever. And, you know, he said, well, how much you covered? I said, I told him. He said, well, what about if this and this and this and this happens? I said, sir, I don't know. He said, truly, I do not know. I said, the fact of the matter is, and that's where I asked him, I said, are you a Christian by chance? And he blinked, and he said, uh, yes, okay. I said, well, we at least got that settled. And I said, um, do, do you read the Bible much? 
Uh, no, no, I don't. I said, you have a Bible? Um, yeah, actually, I do have a Bible. I said, I said well, I, my, my manifesto is basically when it comes to these issues, it is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and Luke 12. I said, those things set my context for how much insurance I buy. I said, I want to allow enough room in my life that God can get some glory. And I'm not sure where that is, where that line all crosses, and it may not all cross the same place for everyone, but I make a calculated decision not to carry as much insurance as I maybe could or maybe should. I don't know. But I want to allow God room to work in my life if he wants to. And so this, this went into a long conversation, and I will not give all of it to you. But when, when we were through this, he goes, what were those chapters again? And I said, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Luke 12. He gets out his, his little notebook, and he, he writes that down. I said, sir, you go home and read that. I said, and while you're reading that, try to blank out everything you were told and consider what would change in your life if you decided I'm going to take every verse literally. What would change in your life? And I said, actually, I would invite you to come back and talk to me about that after you're done. I hope he does. I, actually, I honestly hope he does. But uh, what's the point I'm making? Oh, study the word. Let's do this. Let's look at it. And let's allow God to work, okay? Okay. Number two. Feeling that we understand the scriptures and there's really no need for further instruction. That, that's another challenge we face. To, to decide that because we're Mennonites, after all, and we're not only Mennonites, we're conservative Mennonites, and we're part of the Midwest Fellowship, and we've, we've, got, we've got our ducks in a row. So really the truth of it is there isn't a whole lot more that the, 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 the scriptures can teach us, so um, it doesn't really matter if we read them or not. Be careful with that. Be very, very, very careful. Actually, that's dead wrong. If you've got that attitude, you need to change it. The, the scriptures, you will not learn everything the scriptures has to teach you in a lifetime. It will continue to teach you. Another challenge we have is as we read the scriptures, Jesus talks about the jots and the tittles. He said there is not one jot or tittle that is not going to matter. And so we as Anabaptists and the Anabaptists and we as their descendants spiritually or whatever, we have said that's true. The jots and tittles matter. And we have gone, we have done well in emphasizing jots and tittles, right down to literal feet washing, which, by the way, you know, it's a, it's a secret, but maybe it's not. But our, our progenitors did not practice feet washing, just so you know that. That's something that's a relatively recent development. But we say it's a jot and a tittle that should be observed. On the other hand, there's been way too many people that have been, that have become cynical about people that have professed to follow the jots and tittles to the exclusion of the weightier matters of the law. And what happens is they say, we're going to forget the jots and tittles, we're going for the weightier matters of the law, and eventually lose it all. My point is, the two are not mutually exclusive. Let's, let's continue to emphasize the jots and tittles, but let's not do that to the exclusion of the weightier matters of the law. And that is a sad day that is happening far too often in far too many of our churches. We will practice feet washing, but we are unwilling to practice true humility. We will practice modesty. modesty. We will attempt to. We'll prescribe how that should look, but then we'll make it in an immodest way. We will practice, 
the Christian woman's veiling, they'd be extremely unsubmissive. That is sad. That is extremely sad. And that is not what practicing jots and tittles are all about. It's a challenge for us. Another challenge, learn to appreciate corporate instruction of God's word. In the day of Nehemiah, it says this. It says they read in the book of the law distinctly, and they gave the sense, and they caused them to understand the the reading. Through the generations and the centuries, God has endowed men with the gift of preaching and teaching. He has called men to do so. We talked about the Apostle Paul today. Please, let's, ben- let's, 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 be, let's be beneficiaries of that. I hope the reason you're here this morning is not out of habit. I guess if habit's the only thing that brought you here this morning, that's okay. Well, it's not okay, but I'm glad you're here. I hope I can change your mind. I hope you're here because you wanted to be instructed from the Word of God. I hope that's why you're here. And it does not help to be instructed from the Word of God if we're low on sleep and we're looking out the windows and we're not paying any attention. That won't help you much. It's interesting to me that the first Anabaptist discipline, if you will, the Congregational Order of 1528 had five things. Very, very succinct, but it's five things. One of the things that they called their people to do was that brothers and sisters are required, okay, required to meet three or four times a week for mutual exhortation. When they read scripture, the one with the best understanding should generally have the responsibility of explaining the meaning of the text to others. That was their deal. I'd say our Sunday school uh, hits that pretty hard. It's, it's, It's questionable whether I'm getting that done here. I'm not giving you much time for feedback here, I guess. But but it, what stood out to me was they, they said it is so important that we require you to come three or four times a week for mutual exhortation. The general attitude towards corporate worship is waning. It is not getting stronger. It is waning in today's world. And just about anything will take precedence over the meeting of the people of God together to study God's word. And that's sad. Two more challenges and we're done. Use discernment and discretion when you consider other sources. Listen, we can walk into bookstores, Christian bookstores today, that have volumes that we can read. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. Some of it's very watered down, some of it's pure heresy. Be very, very, very careful. Isaiah 8.20, a very familiar verse, it says, To the law and the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Folks, read this thing and then read your study help, okay? And if this doesn't line up with the study help, the study help's wrong. We live in a time that's ripe with tainted teaching, and we can't be too cautious. We just can't be. All right, the last one. Never believe that you need a theological degree to understand the word of God. Never believe that. Jesus said in Luke 10, he said, In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit, and he said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. 
And whenever John started to wonder if Jesus was the one he was looking for, and his disciples come to him and says, you're the one you were looking for, or is it somebody else? One of the things that Jesus told them to go back and tell John was that the gospel is preached to the poor. Why was the gospel preached to the poor? It's because they could take the gospel, and they didn't need a complicated interpretation. They just took it, and they, and they accepted it at face value. They embraced Jesus' teaching, and Jesus preached to the poor. It takes degrees. It takes degrees to explain infant baptism, women pastors, military service, and gay marriage. It takes degrees to do that. People go off to college to figure out how to do that. I'm convinced. I think part of the problem is that the Word of God is so simple. And when a person goes and learns, he's, post, he's learning so he can figure out the complicated. And you come to the Word of God, and the thing ain't complicated to start with, so you make it complicated so that we can uncomplicate the uncomplicated. That's what happens. It's really what happens. Well, I'm going to wrap this up. I sure hope I spoke to a group of people that really didn't need this message this morning. That's what I hope. I hope you still believe the word of God without a complicated interpretation. I'm going to leave you with this verse. Isaiah 66, 2. To this man will I look. This is God talking. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. We're going to kneel for prayer. And I'm going to ask Brother Virgil, would you lead us in prayer as we kneel?